You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Exodus. The book of Exodus underlines God's desire to rescue people from their misery to a life of promise, meaning, and fulfillment. This eight-week series explores key moments within Exodus in order to more fully appreciate God's love for people. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. I'd like to start off today with a quote by Sheldon von Nocken, because I like saying that name. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. No pressure. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, and Christianity dies a thousand deaths. One of the things that we pray for a lot around here is that we would be the type of people who are witnesses to the nature and character of God, that we would be like this clear glass that people can see through and see the wisdom of God. And this is actually what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 3.10 when he writes that through the church, so that he's talking about the gospel and what the gospel, how it transforms us as individuals and collectively, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God may be known through or excuse me, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And we're in this series called Exodus, and we're, and we're seeing that in the history of the people of God. When you think about the purpose of our life, God was showing that through the narrative of the Israelites. He saves them out of bondage, but it wasn't just saving them for saving's sake. You know, he's not like Batman or, you know, Superman. He doesn't just save just to save. He doesn't just rescue to rescue. He doesn't just, like, rescue and then put on a mask and to his hidden identity, but he saves us for a reason. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to relate to us. He wants to, um, us to, he wants to change us and transform us and take us to a completely new life. In, this, in, 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 the, in the Old Testament narrative, it was the promised land. It's this land where he's going to bless us so that we can be a blessing to the whole world. And that's what we want to take on. We want to like, yes, God has saved us apart from our obedience. When you read Exodus, God didn't come to the Israelites in Egypt and say, okay, here's the Ten Commandments, and if you obey them, then I'll get you out of here. Uh, The Ten Commandments didn't even exist. He said, I'm just going to save you out of grace and my initiative and by faith. They responded to that message. He saves them out of that. He gives them the Ten Commandments. They say, I want you to abide by this. This is the way to live. This is the best way to live. And as you live this way, it's, it's how you and I can relate and you'll become this, this people. And so we talked a little bit that, about that last week. We talked about the Ten Commandments last week. And, and you can listen uh, to that message for more detail. But essentially, we're saying like in order to grow in relationship with God, which really to grow in relationship with anyone that intimacy and obedience go together. Now, we don't usually think of it that way, um, but absolutely that in order for you to grow in relationship with someone else, you have to submit to them or you have to let their will cross your will. Otherwise, you don't treat people like persons. You treat them like objects. So if I was to want something from something but give nothing in return, I just want to stay who I am, I'm treat like a music stand. It's like... I, I demand things from this music stand to use it the way I want to see fit, but I'm not going to do anything from this music stand. And so we treat people like objects when, we, when it's just about our will. And so we don't want to be treated like that, but we, we do treat people like that, and we certainly don't want to treat God like that. So for us to grow in our intimacy with anybody, 
especially God, it does require obedience. And that's what God was warning. He's like, I want you to. And so God's like this spouse. He's putting notes all over the room saying, this is how you love me. This is how you love me. This is how we grow closer together. He does that in the Ten Commandments. And that's what we're, we learned last week. And so this week, though, I want to take a deeper look into uh, the Ten Commandments. We'll go through each one. Actually, maybe just scratch the surface on each commandment, but take a look at each one um, from Exodus 20. And we're not going to look at the first one because we basically addressed that last week, but I'll go ahead and say it. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, thou shall not make for yourself a graven image. Thou shall not make, you, you should not imagine who you think God should be. But let God be God. Most of us, if not all of us, have felt the pain of being misunderstood. In fact, some of you right now are experiencing this pain right now. You've been misunderstood by a parent or a child or a brother or a sister or a spouse. And, and sometimes um, a misunderstood view is worse than a negative view of you. Because when you're misunderstood, you don't feel known. And if you don't feel known, you don't feel loved. Instead of people listening to you, how you actually are, what you actually care about from a distance, uh, they make assumptions about who you are. They make uh, presumptions about who, are, who you are and, and therefore have a dis- distorted view of you and affects your relationship. Now, unfortunately, most of our relationships are like this. We, we don't actually listen to each other. We just have all these assumptions from a distance. We base our, our opinion on them on based on how we imagine them to be not how they actually are. I see this all the time in, in marriages. Marriages have a rough time the first couple of years because the, 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 one of the spouses is treating them the way that they think they should be, not who they actually are. And they realize that, they're like, wait a minute, I thought I married this person, but actually, no, you married this real person right here. Not who you thought they uh, should be, but who they actually are. And marriages kind of get wonky because of that. And we, so we do that in some of our most important relationship. Why do we do that? Well, the psychological answer is that we need to control. Everybody has this need to control. The biblical answer is that it's sin. That what we do almost unconsciously is that we imagine the world whatever it, whatever the way that we world, the world should be, and then we begin to treat people that way without actually how they actually are. And when the person we want to do this with more than anyone is God person that we want to do this more than anyone with God, that we want to make him in our image how we think he should be, not who he actually is. And this is what the Bible means when it says you should not make a graven image. The first command is not to worship other gods. This is a command not to worship God in the way you imagine him to be, but the way he reveals himself through his word. Let me show you this in Colossians 1. He, that is God, is the image, excuse me, Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So God is visible. So we are not to make the invisible visible, a graven image. We're not to make him what we think he should be, but actually the way that the invisible becomes visible is none other than Jesus Christ and his word. And so we, we make a carven image when we just say, well, I think God should be this way. I think God should be this way. I think God should be this way. It's not only a commandment not to do that, but it's, it's not a good way to treat people. It's not how we want to be treated. And so if you want to grow in a relationship with God, if you want to grow in a relationship with anyone, treat them the way that they want to be treated. Love them for who they are, not who you think they should be. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, 
Love him for who he is, not who you think he should be. Number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Now, some people think, well, this is, you're not supposed to swear. That's what this is. It's a, it's a call not to swear, which on one hand, that's true. I mean, we shouldn't frivolously use the name of the Lord. We shouldn't use anybody's name. So I hope like when you hit your hand with a hammer, you don't say, Brian Mowry. Like, I hope you don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. It's not nice. Let me show you this. Matthew 7. This is like one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then check this out. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You were name-dropping. You were name-dropping my name. But we didn't have a relationship. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, name-dropping is a big deal in our culture. If you know the right people, it absolutely opens doors. We know that it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? It's important. It helps create opportunities. Um, it also helps you get out of trouble. I was in a, um, a boat with a... A guy from, a member from the lake, or excuse me, from, uh, from Kirkwood named T.J. Dotson. And since he's not here, let's talk about him. <laughs> Behind his back. It's okay. It's not here. Uh, no, I asked permission to tell the story. And uh, truth be told, I was the one driving the boat. So that's important fact. And um, we got pulled over by the boat police. Did you know they are boat police? <laughs> now I know. And so they, uh, we got pulled over by the boat police initially out of safety because they saw that we let our kids jump out in a dangerous part of the lake. Don't tell their mother. And um, so he comes over to, like, say, hey, don't be here. It's really dangerous to be here. And then he notices, like, oh, you don't have this. You don't have this. And what about a flag and a horn and then uh, registration? And, and I'm just like, not my boat. And so, he, um, and so he's like, who owns this boat? And he's like, I... TJ's like, I do. He's like, what's your name? He's like, TJ Dotson. He's like, he looks up and he says, oh, are you related to Chief Dotson? And TJ's like, well, help me get out of trouble. And, um, <laughs> and in that moment, in that moment, TJ was tempted to use the name of Chief Dotson in vain. He was tempted to fake a relationship for his own purpose now let's say he now, now let me just say he didn't do that and and ever I, and to my knowledge he's been obeying the law ever since but the <laughs> let's say he did do that so oh yeah i know chief dodson the guy would have called him up called the chief up and said hey i've got tj here do you know you know he says he says he says you're his uncle are you his uncle he would have says i never knew him He's a worker of lawlessness. He would have been sent to boat prison or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where that is. Using God's name in vain is really a command against hypocrisy. That word vain means unreality. Using his name in unreality. That you're faking a relationship with him. So it's when we come into a place like this and say, oh yeah, I know Jesus. Do you? I, I, everything's great with me and God. There's nothing wrong in my life. There's no, there's no sin. There's nothing, no, no distance. Everything is amazing when it's not. 
It's using, in the way that you're using the Lord's name in vain for your own purpose is so that you can be seen as something that you're not. God's like, hey, you don't have to do that. Like, I've saved you, I brought you out. Like, we, I, I know everything anyway. I know all this, and you can be, this is, I want to create a community where that's safe. So it's using God's name in a way that's doesn't, that, that pretends relationship. Number four, keep the Sabbath, sanctify it. As the Lord your God has commanded you. This is a command to rely on his grace and provision. Let me show you this in, in Genesis 1.5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now as Americans we have this awesome work ethic. Which is a good thing. But it has an un- ugly underbelly. Which is mean that we, you know, we're the can do people. And so our day begins with sun. We work. And then we rest when the evening comes along. But check out how God created the universe. He created a day to start with evening. And then there's light. To start with rest. And then there's work. Or check this out. Who here remember when uh, God created man? What day was that? What day? I I can go get the J-Kids if they ask them. (laughs) But what is that? Sixth day. Okay, thank you. Sixth day. Okay, another chance here. What did God do on the seventh day? He rested. So he created man on the sixth day. The very first day of man's existence is he rested. It's like getting a new job and starting out with a two-week vacation. It's God's way of, the Sabbath is God's way of saying, look, in this life, it's not about what you earn. It's about what I give you. And it should just cut this axe to the striving of like, I've got to prove myself. I've got to depend upon myself. I have to rely on myself. God wants you to know that he's provided rest from you before he asks you to do anything because he is a God of grace. Every other nation of the world had to work seven days to eat seven days. These Israelites, they work six days and eat seven days because God is their provider. Number five, honor your father and mother. Let's get the J kids back in for this one for sure. Um, in America, there is a general consensus that our, that our country is, is going the wrong way when it comes to social disorder. That social disorder is on the way uh, down. Um, excuse me, it's on the way up and civility is on the way down. And there's not much that, as Americans that we have consensus on, but we have consensus on the fact that there is more crime, there is less safety, uh, there's less integrity uh, pretty much everywhere. A handshake doesn't mean what a handshake used to mean. Now, while we have general consensus on the problem, we do not have general consensus on the solution. Some will point to unjust social systems like inequality in education or racism and other people will point down to the break to the to the breakdown of the family now if you pay attention to the bible says i'll just cut to the chase the bible says it's absolutely both that any culture or society where the powerful marginalize the powerless that society will crumble not speaking in human terms that when a powerful society marginalizes takes advantage of the powerless, that is not good for anybody. The Bible also says that in the family, though, two very important things happen. That you are known and loved and become a more holistic person. The second thing is that you learn what it means to submit your personal needs to the needs of the whole and therefore become a less individualistic person. You become a more holistic person and you become a more 
in a less individualistic person inside the context of the family. Therefore, the family breaks down, society breaks down. Let me show you what this command says in Deuteronomy. It's the same thing, but it adds a little bit to it that's really helpful. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now, what he's not saying is if you obey your parents, you'll live a long time because that's not what he's saying. He's saying that in this land, in the society that I'm creating you, that if you obey my command, this is going to be really great for society, that if the family is working, society will hold together and prosper. However, if the family breaks down, the society isn't going to work. There is a strong connection between the family and the overall vitality of society. So much so in this culture that a child who is malicious or overly rebellious toward a parent, it wasn't a private crime, it was a public crime. Society saw an assault on the family as an assault on them, and discipline was carried out civilly, not privately. A society that supports or is passive about the family unraveling is supportive or passive about its own unraveling. God wired us to be in family. God is a father. He created family for us to thrive in. He invented families for us to thrive in. Even to the fatherless. The, the commu- he's created a community where the fatherless get adopted in and you can have a family through the church of Jesus Christ. His honoring of father and mother is really about honoring what God has brought together in the family. Number six, thou shalt not kill. Now, on the surface, this seems like, okay, I can do this one. I cannot kill somebody. Like, you know, like, you don't need to, like, put a string on your finger to be, okay, now don't pull out a knife and stab someone today. Like, you don't need that. Like, but that's not what it's saying. It's way more than that. The call to murder is really a call to value all human life. Let me show you where I'm getting that from. Genesis 9 says this. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will acquire from it and from man. From his fellow man, I will acquire a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here's what God's trying to say. God is trying to say that... Man, that humanity has a value over all creation. Now, God loves all creation and values all creation. All creation is good. I mean, he created, every time he created something, and it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. So every, all of his creation should be, uh, should be stewarded well. Um, it should be valued. However, there's something very unique about human beings. Human beings are made in God's image and therefore have this almost sacred value, this intrinsic value because they're made in the image of God. Human life is sacred, and anyone who violates it, he says, I will hold accountable. Now, at first glance, you may see God being like, he's like this bloodthirsty God. Like, his sw- you know, he has his swift and severe punishments that almost seem out of whack. But there's a principle here that I really want you to see that points to the value of human life. God is saying that all human life is priceless. That all human life is priceless. Let's say that you owned a piece of land that your dad, you know, your dad was raised and your grandpa was raised and your great-grandpa was raised and his great-grandpa, you know, on and on and on. And, and this is something that you wanted to be in your family and your kids and your kids and, and so on and so forth. And someone wanted to buy that piece of land. You'd say, no way, Jose. 
This land is priceless to me. There is no exchange for it. And so when God says that, you know, that, that I will hold man accountable, what he's saying here, there is no exchange for human life. There is nothing valuable enough to pay for human life except human life. There's nothing in all reality that can be exchanged for it. If God was to say, well, if you take a human life, that'll be 100 sheep, please. You're putting a finite value on human life. A human life is worth 100 sheep or whatever you want to put in there. And because there's nothing you can exchange for a human life other than its own currency. Let me just tell you what I'm not saying. Because some of you may be thinking like, well, I don't know what I think about capital punishment, so I don't even know. That's not the point. I'm not making that point. It's, that's a complicated issue. We're not going to get into it today. But we need to see the value that God puts on human life when he says there's nothing in all of creation that can pay for a human life. There's nothing valuable enough. There's no time. There's no animal. There's no possession. There's no piece of property that's as valuable as a human life. There's only human life can be valued by its own currency. Now, this is a huge advance on the value of human life than anyone else in that creation. That we all know from the code, or we can know, we all may not know, but you can know from the code of Hammurabi in this period, they didn't see all life as the same. So if a rich man killed a poor man, um, all he had to do was just pay off, you know, pay the family off. But if a poor man killed a rich man, that rich man's family could slaughter the entire poor man's family. And God comes along and says, human life is valuable regardless of class distinctions. Nothing can pay for human life except the blood of human life because nothing is as valuable as human life. From the womb to the tomb, when we are the most vulnerable in the womb, when we are the most vulnerable toward the end of our life, the broken, the poor, the marginalized, the imprisoned, the healthy, and the sick, anyone that we would say this human being is awesome and this human being is scum of the earth, all image bearers, both image bearers of God, and all have value. Now, this has massive implications for us. It means that we need to get outside of ourselves and serve people outside our circle, maybe even people that we, we think are below us, when God says, I want you to love other people the way you love yourself, so you feed yourself, you care for yourself, you make sure you have vacations, you make sure you have jobs, you make sure you have love, you make sure you have friendship. Now love, make sure that other people have friendship. Make sure that people have houses. Make sure other people have vacations. Make sure this happens. The way that you treat yourself is the way that you need to treat other people. And we need to get outside of our circle and and, and go serve people who maybe we don't think deserve it but we're just going to do it anyway because we value all human life, not just our life, but other people's lives. And there are things that maybe your hub or your location are doing that you can get involved in to serve, to begin to make a difference in, in areas like social justice, to bring comfort to the poor, to find someone marginalized in society and begin to serve them and love them. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Many people view Christians as being sexually repressed. That the call for limiting, se- it's a call to limiting sexual pleasure. So Christianity is the can't religion. Can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. And, a- and it's a little bit fair because after all, we're reading these things. It's like, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But every, behind every don't is a much more significant do. 
For example, we just learned that the call not to kill is, is born out of a bigger call to love. And here in a minute, we're going to learn that the call not to steal is actually a bigger call to be generous. And this call not to commit adultery, it's another negative that flows out of the positive because the Bible says, thou shalt have great sex. And you probably didn't know the Bible said that, which is why you need to read the Bible more. And so let me show you what I'm talking about. Proverbs 5. This is a father to a son. And just to say, like, I can't imagine saying this to my son. But anyway, let me, <laughs> let your, you know, just read this and talk, talk to your mom. Uh, let, let, your, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Now, that sounds like a little bit more than procreation. Talk about that later. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden, so there is restrictions, there are boundaries, woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The biblical view of sex is not a negative view of sex. The prohibitions and the restrictions that the Bible does have that we don't have time to get into, but we have in the past and we will in the future, flow from a command. It wasn't a suggestion, a command to have great sex. Derek Kidner said this. this is a, uh, he's a commentator on this passage. He said that this text teaches what history and common sense affirm. That when marriage is chiefly a business relationship, a business relationship, not only is God's view of sex misunderstood, but human passion will seek other outlets, a la verse 20, will commit adultery. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And like what you have to look up conjugal later if you know what I mean. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Do not deprive one another except perhaps for agreement and for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again. So if you have a biblical marriage and you're not at the prayer meeting, we know what you're doing. And so that's number one. Number two, number two, what Paul is saying here is like, did you just get it? Did the two most, <laughs> I'm like hearing this delayed response like, what Paul is saying here is like the two most powerful things that you can do in your marriage is, is to pray a lot and have lots of sex. That's what it's saying. The Puritans, they get a bad rap. They, they, they get this rap of like just being very squeamish and almost prudish. I mean, after all, with a name like Puritans, but what they were were biblical purists. They wanted, a, uh, they wanted to create a movement of people who went back to the scriptures and had the scriptures define everything that they do. And if you read how they talk about sex, it will make you blush. And I kid you not. They had pay, they, there was a history class, um, it, granted it was the 1950s, at Yale University about the Puritans, and they had to delete everything in there about sex because it was that explicit they took it so seriously because they saw how important sex was in a marriage that if a husband was caught, was found to not be having sex with his wife 
and the elders found out that husband was put in the stockade in the public square. We're not going to do that here, number one. What is your point, Brian? Well, here's my point. My point in all of this is to say the Bible is not anti-sex. It gets misunderstood in terms of, because we're not really reading what the Bible actually says. It does have restrictions. It does have boundaries, and it's for our good. But the Bible wants this to happen. My son be intoxicated by her love. Number eight, thou shall not steal. How many here have ever had anything stolen from them? Raise your hand. Most of us. What's interesting, when you have something stolen from you, it feels like ten times worse than just having it, the, the thing break. Have you, ever, have you noticed that? Like when, some, when, when, when someone steals something from you, it's not just a loss of possession, but you actually feel violated. If someone takes something, it can even be something simple. Like if you've got a coworker who takes a pen off your desk, you'll march right over there and you'll say, hey, if you needed that pen, would you please ask me for it? And they're thinking it's 19 cents or actually either you can go in the cabinet over there and get like 10,000 of them. But there's something about something being in our possession that when someone takes it, no matter how small it is, we feel violated. Why is that? Well, here's why. We are created by God to have and care for things. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, this is your garden. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to make something of it. I want you to multiply it. We are created by God to have and care for things. And to steal is to take something that is someone else's. You're not just taking a raw possession, but you're taking part of their humanity. It's a dehumanizing activity. And that's why we feel violated. Because we are called to steward things. That's why, when we, well, that's why we light up more than we probably care to admit when we get something new. It goes well beyond the possession because there's something about there's something about having something that we can call ours. I mean, our kids, if they have like a, a paper clip, I mean, this is like their paper clip. If this is, this is my bed and my bedroom. And, and I mean, this is like the great, I mean, like the thing that my kids are looking forward to is the day that they have their own room. That's like their highest ambition in life. They want their own. Where is that coming from? It's coming from something that God's put in us, that we, there's something about us have God's put stuff in our midst. Part of what it means to be human is to cultivate and care for things. That's why incarceration, when you're stripped of all personal belongings, is one of the most dehumanizing experiences that you can have. It's also why extreme socialism is a failed system. When you take away personal possession and responsibility, it dehumanizes you. It's why we're discovering that the way to build up poor neighborhoods isn't by building more soup kitchens or shelters or giving out more freebies, but it's through the empowerment of home ownership. I mean, that's basically common knowledge now. There are two ways, it's important to note, that we can rob people, the Bible talks about. We can rob people through wrong taking, which we've talked about, but we also rob through wrong keeping. Let me show you Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Question, when is a thief not a thief? Paul says that a thief is not a thief, not when he stops stealing, 
but when he becomes radically generous. The Bible says that you can either be a thief or you can be a generous person, and there's nothing in between. You can steal through wrong taking, and you can steal through wrong keeping. Let me show you what God says to the prophet Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? There's like a lot of fear in the voice. Like, oh my gosh, what have we done? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. So go, remember what I said about how God gave Adam and Eve the garden to cultivate? Not as owners, but as stewards. And God has put something in you, this desire to have something that you, that, that, that you can call your own, that, you can, that, that is in your possession. And when you take something from someone, you're taking a part, you're, you're, there's a dehumanizing effect that's happening when you steal something from someone else. You're taking, you're, you're robbing them of their caretaker rights. Yet, when you, when you fall into stealing by wrong keeping, you violate your own caretaker rights and you abuse the power that God has given you. Regardless of your political affiliation, and regardless of whoever is in office, everybody, as far as I've been alive, has always complained about the government and the abuse of power. We look at the government and we're like, you know, they're, they, they're, they're doing things that they shouldn't do. They're abusing, they're abusing the power that they've been given. But we do the same thing. We abuse the power that we've been given. Everything in the earth is God's. And he gives us power. Money is power. God's given you power. God's given you money. And you abuse that power with wrong keeping. God laid it out. He gave you a certain amount. I don't know what that is. doesn't matter. It could be a little. It could be a lot. But he gave you a certain amount, regardless of how much that is. Some of that is for you, and some of that is for you to give away. You steal when you, when you take something that's not yours, and you steal when you d- fail to give something away. When you keep, when you should have given. Because everything is God's. And he gave you a power, but you're supposed to use it in a different way. Just like we expect our government to use the power they've been given in a certain way. And when they don't, bad things happen. When you abuse the power that you've been given, bad things happen to others and to yourself. Thou shalt not steal. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, I'm going to just skip this point because we talked a lot about this in the Titus series. So let me move on to the last one. It says, thou shalt not covet anything that is your neighbor's. The tenth and final command is a command to be content with what you have, but I see it as a reward and not just a command because if you live the life that God has put in front of you, you won't want anybody else's. If you live the life that God has put in front of you, you will not want anybody else's. So it's a command to not want what's not yours, but it's also a reward. I mean, how awesome would it be that everything you have is all that you want? Now, we believe that, but we believe the way that happens is you get everything that you want. But tell me, the, tell me, please tell me, a few years back when you said, if I can only have this, then life will be better. And tell me how that's working for you. It's not. Being content with what you have. Not wanting 
not, not to have this overwant for what is um, not yours and then wanting everything that you do have. We know from scriptures that God is not stingy and wants to bless us. So not coveting comes out of this idea of like God has provided everything that I need. If I don't have it, it means I shouldn't have it. And if I have it, it means I should. God, God has provided everything that I need. If I don't have it, I can trust in him. The Bible says that he who did not spare his own son, will he not give us all things? If he's going to hold back something from you, don't you think he would have held back his own son? So anytime you're left thinking, like, I wish I had this, it's an opportunity to remember the gospel, to remember that God, if you don't have it, it's only for your good, which I know is sometimes hard to imagine. But if you don't have something, it's for your good, because he has not even spared his own son. If there's something that you, that's going to make a difference in your life and it's something that's going to be for your good, he would give it to you. He would absolutely give it to you. He is not going to withhold that. He is not going to withhold that. And when you begin to realize the depths in which he loved you, how vulnerable he made himself. Last week we talked about how God made him vulnerable to us. That he was, he was God, but he became human. I don't even know how to describe that. It's, it's, like, it's like you becoming a slug so that you can love other slugs. Imagine that. How, how much you'd have to lower yourself. How much you'd have to limit yourself to live the life of a slug. You know, and like, instead of a cross, it's just like a big salt shaker that just came out. Like. God made himself so vulnerable to us. All analogies break down. All analogies cannot compare to what, how God has made it. And not in just coming to us, becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. We can trust him. And that's what this is all about. How do we love? This, you know, Jesus broke down the commands in two basic ones. Love God with everything you have. Love others as you love yourself. How do we love God? We trust him. We trust his goodness in our life. I, yeah, I know sometimes he asks us to do things that don't make sense. When we want to learn karate, he tells us to wax the cars. You'll have to listen last week. He tells us to do things that don't make sense sometimes. But he knows exactly where he wants to take us. He saved us from our Egypt, and he's, he is taking us to a promised land. If we will trust him and come near to him, both when things are going well and when things aren't, and trust in him, you'll see a fountain of blessing flow out of your life. 